0: You're dressed for battle, Edie.
1: Mother's telling Marjorie how spoiled I am, how terrible I am. And Marjorie knew my father and my uncle and everybody. Mother's giving her all this S-H-I-T. So I went and told her some things about the family. But you see, in dealing with me, the relatives didn't know that they were dealing with a staunch character. Welcome to The Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 85 today, and also kicking off our celebratory month of my co-host and lovely wife, Septerica. What are we talking about in your honor today?
1: I started a tradition a few years ago with our regular movie nights, where I showed documentary shorts. And I think these have been really fun. They were titles that people hadn't heard of, most people hadn't seen, including you. So I decided for this Septerica, for our show to choose Gray Gardens from 1975.
0: What is it about the documentary format that is so special to you that makes you want to celebrate it as you celebrate yourself?
1: I'm a big fan, and I guess I'm celebrating myself by talking about myself. (laughs) But really, I am a big documentary fan, and I've tried to watch a lot through the years. I, probably like you, am a big PBS person, and that's probably where I came to documentaries in the first place. Maybe I just really like those school film strips a lot too. It's the chance to learn about people in places I would otherwise never have a chance to get to know. I got on that track for movie nights because we never showed any sort of documentary, at least that I could remember, so it seemed like the chance to do something really different. And this is not the first documentary we've covered in the Magic Lantern podcast. It's certainly a terrific one. It came out the year of my birth. Maybe that's the connection. It was shot and recorded by Albert and David Mazel's, and Ellen Hovda and Muffy Meyer also directed. Susan Fromkey was an associate producer, and the three women, Ellen Hovda, Muffy Meyer, and Susan Fromke, were also the film's editors. Grey Gardens follows a mother and daughter from the wealthy and famous Bouvier and Beale families who came to live in poverty and seclusion in the extremely wealthy East Hampton area. This is a documentary, as I mentioned, and we can discuss its style later, whether it's direct cinema or something else, So while we do hear Albert and David conversing directly with Big Edie and Little Edie, the creators made clear that they tried to in no way interfere with the reality of these women, and what we see was not a put-on for the camera.
0: Yeah, there is a lot to dig into there, because it is very specifically put-on in some ways, but I don't think the way critics of the form would think of it. And as I was sitting there listening to you give a synopsis, I was trying to think of any way that you could just, in a few lines, sum up what happens on screen in this thing. It's impossible.
1: At this point, it's now been referenced in many different formats. I think it was directly a classic, as Little Edie proclaimed it, almost immediately from the moment that it came out. And so you might think you know what you're about to see, but you have no idea
0: Initially, we meet them the way the Mazels met them. There is a brief introduction to the house that really sets the tone. The Beals yelling back and forth to each other. The cat got out where the raccoons got in. The decrepit quality of the house, which deteriorates even over the short time that we are with them. There's a brief survey of the surrounding extravagant homes and then a pan over to the dilapidated exterior of Great Gardens followed by news accounts of the attempted eviction slash condemnation by the health department. Little Edie calls this backdrop a mean, nasty Republican town, and I can't imagine that I would disagree with her. East Hampton doesn't strike me as a place that values its eccentrics. I imagine that any nail that sticks out gets hammered down pretty quickly and thoroughly.
1: I really like how one of our first images is from inside the house looking out. Everything is in darkness on the inside, and it's daytime out. You can start to imagine that this limited view is the only one the Beals might have had. As we start to hear those shrill voices, I had a hard time understanding them at first. I think it's definitely a rhythm you have to fall into.
0: Funny that you mention that. I felt sort of the same thing, and I've seen it multiple times, and I was almost tempted to turn on the subtitles. I wonder how many other viewers have that same experience.
1: And each time I watch it, I realize I missed something that someone said in a previous viewing. For example, the whole marble fawn Mm -hmm. theme I had completely missed out on.
0: Yeah, the marble fawn as a general reference that the average person would just reach out and grab out of the air is not something that I run into very often. They're clearly unconventional. But all of this at the beginning makes me wonder, are they living on their own terms? I don't know how that's exactly possible, as I don't think that they were entirely capable of protecting themselves. Money was raised for this cleanup effort by their more famous, much more well-off family. Money's a big point, actually, of how there's any story to even tell with this, I think. They lived out of three rooms, but that meant that there were 25 unusable rooms in this huge house. They're clearly faded aristocracy, so privilege enters into this conversation somewhere, but is it so far in the rearview mirror as to have no bearing on their day-to-day?
1: I'm thinking about something that Big Edie's father, Major Bouvier, said. He'd invented sort of a faux royal mythos for his family, and he liked to tell his children and grandchildren that the hallmark of aristocracy is responsibility. Little Edie mentions this, in the course of the film as well. And I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about this other idea of the poison of aristocracy. The reality of their lives, and I guess reality is kind of a fluid term here, Mm -hmm. because it depends on who you ask. By the time that Big Edie was in adulthood, she had basically just a trust to live on. And she and Little Edie claimed that that trust was basically gutted. So they ended up living on about $300 a month.
0: Now, for the average person in $1975, that's not too terrible, I don't think.
1: I think that it's doable, but I can't imagine doing it in a 28-room house and maintaining the house and then having money left over to eat.
0: Well, all you need is sack after sack of Wonder Bread and a few boxes of cat food.
1: Sadly, that's the case. So, I don't think that they were living by any kind of means that either had grown up with. But as you mentioned, those days are long since in the rearview mirror. So this is where I think of the poison of aristocracy, the sense of entitlement that it can bring, the idea, like Major Bouvier talked about, that you are somehow imbued with something that the rest of us aren't.
0: Like (laughs) Spider-Man.
1: Too bad they didn't have a spidey sense, which leads me to my next point, actually. Sort of. I thought about Wanda, a film that we've covered previously, and also the film Smithereens, which we've been watching lately. I'm thinking about those women, or really people, who were either born without gifts, or born into some background that prevented them from realizing any sort of marketable or employable gift, and what that means when they cease to be young. Are they then essentially superfluous? What are their choices and options at that point, do they feel any value in themselves?
0: And I would put value in quotation marks, just in terms of the strata that they were used to living in.
1: It's all relative, pun intended.
0: (laughs) But by now, I would guess that there had to be other behind-the-scenes intervention on their behalf at various points throughout the years. Because of one major factor. If, as seems obvious now, they were both mentally ill... Is this assistance helping them maintain their independence, or is it ultimately harmfully enabling them in the long run? Would they have been better served if someone had just shut this place down altogether? And I'm not trying to take agency from them. I'm asking that mainly because the living conditions alone seem to be hazardous. The Mazels had to wear flea collars when they were filming this. But those considerations aside, do you think that they could have survived or even thrived in a different environment?
1: Well, there's something I'm about to say that I've said many times on the show. I don't know the answer. (laughs) I am really going back and forth a lot. Right after we watched this, the most recent time, I immediately said, this is about mental illness. Since then, I listened to Little Edie's audio that's part of the supplement with the Criterion Edition, read more things about it, have gone back and forth and back and forth. And I've also watched way too many episodes of Hoarders. So my current worldview is coloring that worldview. I don't know exactly who to believe. The health department doesn't quote-unquote raid your house without any reason, and yet Little Edie offers a reasonable explanation. It could have also been a hungry real estate developer. It could have been another relative behind it that sort of back-end intervention. And she talks about going through the village, which she then just had to stop doing because she was treated as if she was insane. So if you're not insane, but people tell you enough that you are, do you start to become insane?
0: I think I've thought about a lot of the same things as you in the past couple of weeks about this. I've gone back and forth a lot. On one hand, the place seems so integral to who they are that taking them out of it could have stripped away the very last thing that they were hanging on to. On the other hand, they have demonstrated that they are smart women and incredibly resilient. So who knows? I think I come down on the side that it would have been ultimately more harmful to take them out of this place.
1: Little Edie alludes to something really interesting in that audio that I mentioned, specifically about the house. Basically, why not just give up the house? The family had been trying to make them do that for a very long time. And she talks about how... This thing, whatever the thing is, the house or some other project or goal or something tying you down, you can trick yourself into thinking that it matters, that you have to do all of these things to protect it. I think again about that poison of aristocracy. When in reality, it doesn't matter. But she didn't know at that point that her mother would die within about two years and then she herself would sell the house roughly two years after that.
0: This montage of news clippings that we see. It makes me wonder why this particular case is so newsworthy. What is the fascination? I guess it's an obvious variety of factors. It's the connection to what we perceive as American royalty. Madness will always sell papers. That schadenfreude of, oh, how the mighty have fallen. You reference hoarders. We've since come to learn that hoarding is not a quirk of the aristocracy as it once was considered. Reality TV squarely puts that ball in the court of the middle class now. But I think in the early 70s, it wasn't thought of as so pedestrian. And if this was a two-bedroom split level in Buffalo, there wouldn't have been nearly as many column inches devoted to this story. Without that fascination in the press, though, the Maisels wouldn't have been as aware of them, so it was of some benefit? Question mark?
1: I don't think you can discount the importance of the Kennedy connection. Strangely enough, I've talked to a lot of people over the years about the Kennedys, which I know sounds faintly ridiculous, and I think it comes down to a regional thing. Being originally from the East Coast, they dominated our lives, many generations of them.
0: Even as a young person growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, you were still hearing that much about it?
1: Absolutely, because it was... Jackie Kennedy to Jackie O, and then it was JFK Jr., and on and on and on. And think about how this whole thing got started in the first place, the project itself. Lee Radziwill had the idea to put together a film on her reminiscences of growing up, she and Jackie. She and Jackie being nieces of Big Edie, first cousins of Little Edie. She hired the Maisels to work on a film about the Bouvier family— And about their childhood friends, it was going to be something along the lines of reminiscences of old East Hampton, which to me sounds like the most entitled thing I could possibly think of.
0: Isn't it too, too devastating?
1: (laughs) It is.
0: Well, she didn't get the outcome that she expected, I don't think.
1: No, she was horrified by... What they filmed of Little Edie and Big Edie jokes on her, the Maisels managed to find the two interesting members of the entire family and turn the camera on them. And that early footage that they put together, she confiscated it.
0: It wastes little time in getting to know these women and their obvious quirks. I love this scene where Little Edie explains her outfit and why it's best for the day, and I love it for a couple of reasons. One, she is obviously one of a kind, and we get a keen sense of her style right off the bat. And two, it illustrates something critical about the Maisel style as well. The difference it makes in a film like this when a rapport develops between filmmaker and subject and what that yields versus a more fly-on-the-wall approach. I am frequently irritated by documentarians that inject themselves into the narrative for a number of reasons. Towards the lighter end of those infractions, I find Michael Moore's presence just slightly distracting. In the absolute worst example I can think of, Nick Broomfield needs to learn that not everything he records is about him. That guy is awful. There is no need for him to ever be on screen. This is different from any of that, though. The Mazels aren't making themselves the center of attention. It's more the case that the relationship that they had with the Beals brought out something special. The Beals were always performing, camera or not, visitors or not. But the mutual fondness between them and the Mazels gave this something extra, I feel like.
1: And thank you for clarifying that. When I first started in the introduction, I mentioned that this was not a put-on, because I do think this is how they always were. Little Edie said specifically that having the measles in the house changed nothing. And Albert talked about how this was essentially a conversation, and how they couldn't help and didn't want to help from conversing with them as they were going. He said, and I believe him, that they never prompted anything, they never pushed them in a certain direction. And he also said, which I find to be incredibly charming and endearing, that this film brought us all four together. Quickly back to Edie's costume for the day, this was the first thing that struck me when I watched it, and I was also delighted to know that the film footage that we don't see, she had something like 50 or 60 other outfits that I hope will be treated to see one day.
0: It turns out that she changed costumes so many times, At Big Edie's urging, it was Big Edie's idea for her to do that, and she made about 10 costume changes a day, apparently.
1: I think that that's the literal most clear signal of their resilience, what she's able to put together with the tatters that they have left.
0: Albert Mazel's actually tells a story about her showing up at one of the screenings, maybe at one of the various premieres for this, wearing an old red velvet gown of Jackie O's, but wearing it backwards. (laughs) <laughs> throwing roses to the crowd.
1: Oh my gosh, that's the best.
0: Now, when I was younger, I think I thought that this was more funny. And in one regard, I wouldn't have been entirely wrong. There are moments of great comedy in it. Documentary Now spoofs it for good reason. And Big Edie is funny when she is being a deliberate pain in the ass. But the rest of that would have been me laughing for all the wrong reasons. And that's on me. I was neither smart nor empathetic enough to fully understand what I was seeing the first time around.
1: And Little Edie is a hoot, on purpose. It also changes with my age, and I was a little hesitant to watch it now, especially for Septerica. I'm about to be 43, still younger than Little Edie in this film, but in some respects, it does serve as a visual representation of my greatest fear for my future.
0: Thinking about how my view of it has changed and how I've become more sympathetic to it over the years makes me wonder how well any of us would fare if cameras were with us 24 hours a day, especially at an advanced age. You mentioned that you're 43, I'm five years older than you, and I find myself becoming more firmly entrenched in the way I do things all the time. So imagine that 15 to 40 years down the road from where we are. You've gotten used to the way things are. You are very comfortable in your own skin by that point. You're interacting a little less, maybe a lot less, with the world at large. Maybe over the years you've been letting go of life's formalities one at a time. The internet has made me aware of just how many people barely get through their days sometimes because of their idiosyncrasies manifesting as near debilitating anxiety. Think of something as simple as... Like how many people can't eat in front of someone else. A thing that Big E.D. actually refers to in relation to the Maisel's presence. The Beals' level of exposure and honesty regarding all this stuff is extraordinary. All their idiosyncrasies are on display. If you see something in them that you relate to, but then you say, I could never do that myself, you should at least acknowledge what they're putting out there so that you don't have to. We owe these women a tremendous debt for being so open and available and accessible. For being so fiercely themselves. I thank Big and Little Edie for their service. Could you show this much of yourself on screen?
1: I hope I shall not be called upon to do so. <laughs> but I guess I can't imagine at some point turning a sweater into a tube top.
0: Now, I hear myself making this argument as I sit here, and I wonder how committed to this idea I am and where I would draw lines in relation to, say, the current crop of reality television. What is the difference between these women and the Kardashians, for instance? The distinction that I immediately make is that the Beals don't feel utterly mercenary.
1: I hesitate to even go down the road of the Kardashians. I'm not even sure I should say anything. I was thinking about them a lot the other day, to the extent where I was getting mad walking into work. Because I think if anyone could be labeled superfluous, it's them. And sometimes I wish that they would be wiped off the face of the earth. And then at the same time, that's incredibly ridiculous. I guess if anything, it feels like they've managed to game the system and I think the system is rotten. But they do underscore that idea I was talking about earlier. I think that they have very few gifts, but they have managed to turn them into marketable gifts. So at this point, they're making their way in the world by their own image, by their bodies, by other things that they produce. So does that make them disgusting somehow? I don't know. Now I'm kind of getting mad again.
0: Well... Let me tell you something. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot.
1: That's why I watch dog videos (laughs) all day long.
0: Seriously though, what you said, it does make me think of this thing about how I feel like I've grown in relation to this film and how this film has shown me that. This struggle you feel within yourself and then grudgingly coming down on the side of, okay, they are free to do their thing, does observing the Beals engender a specific kind of compassion in you that lets you let people be themselves?
1: And you mentioned earlier about what to me can sometimes feel like an onslaught of anxiety disorder stories on social media, which depending on whatever groups you're in, could end up being a lot of those kinds of stories. And I admit, sometimes I find them tiresome. Sometimes I want to just say, get over it. And then I come back to this film again and wondering... What part did mental illness play in this story? How much compassion should I have? How about we just have a lot and assume people are doing the best that they can all the time and go from that standpoint?
0: Well, speaking of tabloid culture, the Edie's interaction reminds me a lot of my mom and her mother. My grandma Sue, a devoted reader of the National Enquirer and Star Magazine.
1: <laughs> my grandmother Evelyn was too.
0: She was easily as cranky, sharp, and set in her ways as Big Edie. And toward the end of her life, when she was very sick and my mom was taking care of her and simultaneously dealing with her own cancer, they were kind of locked into a similar repetitive cycle of passing these days with not much to do. Not in the same thwarted ambitions kind of way, but more in that sense of needling each other in that way that you can only develop over decades when you have such an incisive shorthand for it. God help you if you didn't keep up with plucking Sue's chin hairs when she couldn't do it herself. And even when she really couldn't talk, she was still telling those jokes with her eyes. You could see it. One day, I picture my sister and my mother moving into these roles. I don't exactly see it happening with my dad and I. I talked in our No Country for Old Men episode about our dynamic. And it doesn't feel nearly as interdependent as what I see in Grey Gardens, for instance. My dad's dad, as an example, by the end of his life, had moved into a small trailer, only room for one person, and moved that trailer into a barn... And if you wanted to talk to him, you went to where he was. The only thing that sounds better to me than that is if you could also lock the barn.
1: I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, he was still married at the time, right? Oh yeah,
0: yes, definitely. I can't recall a father-son dynamic anywhere in film, actually, now that I think about it, like Grey Gardens. Brother's Keeper has a sad fraternal intimacy, but that's obviously apples and oranges with this. What Grey Gardens depicts is the sense of duty that is very specific to mothers and daughters,
1: I think so, and I think then you take it into the little edy big edy realm, and it's an even bigger story. I can't imagine playing this out with my mother
0: that I would love to see no <laughs>
1: nope not not even joking here, but I haven't seen that kind of reality play out with any of my relatives. It probably has, I just haven't seen it at close quarters. But here's what I don't want for myself, even though there is clearly from top to bottom love in this relationship. I don't want to enact that with anybody.
0: Well, they're both very intelligent women. It's a decaying intelligence, though. It's a kind of remnant of their genteel upbringing and the very specific education they received because of that. It's often indicated in the language. For instance, I love the way Little Edie always refers to it as luncheon. There's a clear wit here, too, but they also seem to allow everything equal access to their lives, things they hear in the news, paperback astrology books, they listen to this Norman Vincent Peale sermon, and they're very moved and entertained by that. Is this inability or unwillingness to discriminate more symptom or more disease? And that's a question that I could ask of all of us. But in this case, Big Edie seems stronger. So I wonder about it in Little Edie's case in particular, being able to discern what is true and useful and having the wherewithal to put that into practice.
1: I think of them as coming from a time where singing and drawing and doing the flowers would be the height of what you could achieve.
0: But for a different class, it seems like their aspirations seem yes, thank you very much out of step with their social station that would not have been allowed they essentially wanted to be showgirls is how their family and friends thought of it
1: yes you know light entertainment basically or models when little edie's father was urging her to be a lady lawyer and that to me would also seem out of step with everyone else how many other women were being encouraged or pushed in that direction so what world are they supposed to inhabit They have access to read these things, they have access to learn these things, and yet they're coming from a time with entrenched religious values, moral values, where spiritualism was still completely accepted as fitting into either of those.
0: Well, going through Big Edie's wedding photos, for instance, makes me wonder how you could communicate the nuances of an entire life, an entire family history so that an audience will understand, or at least be sympathetic, to the road you took to get to where you are now. It's obviously impossible to consider all of the facets of that. That being said, I at least have a little more faith in Big Edie and her recollections of how her life was, reflecting on how much she enjoyed singing. She does seem talented and somewhat accomplished. How accurate do you feel like they are? Big Edie's reflections on her life versus Little Edie's and hers.
1: When Big Edie says, I had a very happy life, I think, is she delusional? Because just taking the facts, which we've already discussed, maybe aren't the true facts, or they can have different realities. When you look at those on paper, her marriage was not particularly long. They separated, he had another life, she received no alimony, had no means of support, and was in her 40s at that point. And there are multiple allusions to her being sickly at different times. She did have to have a number of surgeries. And it's the same for Little Edie, things plaguing her throughout her life. But I do believe when she's talking about those periods of time when she was singing and working with Gould, when Tom Logan was living with her, that she was happy to the extent that that word meant something to her. But all the while that she's telling these stories, Little Edie is coming in and saying, no, that's not how it happened. She wasn't.
0: Well, you sort of addressed my question before I could even ask it. The thing it makes me think with all of the resources at their disposal, money, lineage, at least a modicum of talent, they were both strikingly beautiful. What happened that was so drastic that put them where they are now versus all of the infinite possibilities that it looked like were in front of them?
1: I guess that's where I come back to. There has to be some degree of mental illness in here. Otherwise, there have to be a thousand then missed opportunities and a thousand bad choices. Though, again, I come back to little Edie's audio and she talks about how she never married because no one really seemed to know what to do with her. Nobody got her. I believe it.
0: I think you're the same as me in this case. I have so many questions that I don't imagine can ever truly be answered about this. What did both women reject? What was within their power to decide? Little Edie clearly feels that there was some point, at least, at which she could have said yes to a different life. Two roads diverged and all that. But ultimately, what was intended to be short-term here at Grey Gardens became 25 years in the blink of an eye. She missed her big chance, and that would define the rest of her life until the day she died. Do you think Big Edie would have so deliberately sabotaged her? Is it as simple as, if I can't be a singer, you can't be a dancer?
1: I think she says something really revealing that, of course, she didn't want to see her child taken away because she would be alone. I'm also thinking about having watched the HBO film from a few years ago that fills in some of this backstory.
0: I still haven't seen that, unfortunately.
1: I think it's tremendous.
0: It's Drew Barrymore and... Jessica Lange. Ah, Okay, I love Jessica Lange.
1: And when you watch that... I think you do get the sense that if one doesn't sabotage the other, they're going to sabotage themselves somehow. Can I tell you something I thought was hilarious?
0: Yeah. <laughs> what is that?
1: Little Edie talking about how she was contacted by film companies, and one of them said they wanted to make a movie about them, and they were going to have Julie Christie play her, which she thought was just ridiculous and incredibly laughable. And she said, if they had gotten Julie Christie, imagine who they would have gotten for mother, Dame May Whitty. <laughs> And that just made me laugh so much.
0: Well, this sabotage thing is something that I just do not understand. Family politics like that, I just don't get. I don't participate in them. You pull that garbage all the way up to and including my dear sainted mother, and you've probably seen the last of me. It's hard enough to spend a lot of time with people that you choose for yourself, much less the ones that you are just associated with by the coincidence of blood. If you want a seat at this table, it's a meritocracy. You earn it with honorable behavior, Regardless of where you are on the family tree everything else just save yourself the time and heartache and just walk away Unless you're banking on the Mazels knocking on your door and giving you your 15 minutes odds aren't good for that though
1: there's one other wrinkle I want to throw in here before I forget and Little Edie said this and it does make a lot of sense when you think about it How much World War II, at the time that it came in their lives did play a part but of course within the framework of who they were as people Just another missed opportunity for the men, they could go off and do something. They could see the world. She talks about how so many of them got married over there. And then her female friends, who were free, who didn't have Big Edie as their mother, maybe, were also able to go out and do things, to find other vocations, or to even get married. So I wonder, you don't always know that it's your last chance until you've seen the back of it.
0: Well, I said earlier that years ago, laughing at them was probably my initial response. The phase I imagine I went through after that, or maybe even a little simultaneously with that, was feeling sorry for them. And in retrospect, that is an arrogant bullshit way for me to think. The only way that still applies at all is with respect to the ways in which their future may have been dictated by squares that were only interested in squashing whatever was beautiful, creative, and unique about them. The other things that I might have been embarrassed about on their behalf, that's all on me again. Where I finally come down, now, years later, is that I simply like them. They're charming. Maybe even heroic. They're thumbing their nose at convention, living as who they truly are. Now, the Mazels were accused of exploiting them by various camps, but I wholeheartedly disagree with that. For one reason, this whole idea of... Some people shouldn't be filmed. There are some things we shouldn't point the camera at. I think that is asinine. In my estimation, if humans do it, it is fair game to be documented. There's nothing I will not watch. Especially in a case like this where the subjects so clearly want to be filmed. Is your argument, you, plural you, universal you, is your argument that you know what's better for their lives? Get out of here with that condescending garbage. Big Edie reportedly approved of the whole thing, and Little Edie staunchly defended it to the end. If it doesn't bother them, why should it bother us?
1: Absolutely. I go back to Little Edie's words, where she completely made that assertion that they were exploited untenable. They were completely involved from start to finish. They loved the film. Big Edie was asked if she had any more to say, and she said, no, it's all there. It was privately screened for him, so it's not like it was hidden from them. And then the Mazels continued to go back and see them many times afterwards, simply out of friendship. So I'm with you. Anyone who says that, I think, somehow imagines that they know better than the Beals themselves. I'm looking at you, Lee Radziwill.
0: There are others I could throw on that pile, too. I really do think it's a Rorschach test. Our response to it says as much about us as anything. Another person I want to light up for that, Walter Goodman. He wrote a somewhat scathing review in the New York Times. And in it, he says he feels disgust with the Maisels brothers for taking advantage of these women. But tellingly, the whole review ends with him talking about, and these are quotes, the Beals' sagging flesh and ludicrous poses and them being pitiable. That review, to me, shows us something much more of Walter Goodman than it does anything about the Beals. And speaking of how staunchly she defended this, Little Edie is a staunch character, she would have you know. (laughs)
1: S-T-A-U-N-C-H.
0: The weight of things that they reveal in these unguarded moments, though I guess thinking about it, every moment with them is an unguarded moment, is really where the heart of the movie lies. Ruminating on how being able to choose her subjects at school is what displeased her father is so telling. Her obvious vanity and compulsive concern regarding her hair and her scarves. Most illuminating, though, I think are these observations that demonstrate a near crushing self-awareness. Specifically, I'm thinking of when she says, you don't see me as I see myself, and how it's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. There's an incredible amount of clarity there. Don't think these women don't know how the world views them. They just have ceased to care in the way that people think they should. It's the age-old conflict between outsiders versus those threatened by anything but the most conventional lifestyles.
1: And that's why they couldn't go into East Hampton anymore. That feeling of being hounded, almost as if they're witches. And it seems like every story that they mentioned could have happened the moment before. Every missed proposal, every man sent away. Edie being terrified of her father, driven by him. Big Edie singing, still believing in little Edie's words that she has a wonderful voice. And I'm not going to argue with her. There's a great section where they're almost in parallel talking about different man stories, how these men have occupied their lives. Didn't you think Edie was going to get married? Why didn't you marry the man you wanted to like I did? And on and on and on.
0: I think that's a good place to get into what we identify with and don't identify with in the film. Their reclusiveness and outsider status is what I now identify with the most here, so it's not as difficult to watch for me as it might be for some people. I don't feel the regret due to thwarted ambition or a dream deferred like little Edie feels, so that part of it is not hard. If someone shares that aspect of her life, I can see where this might be tough sledding. Her arrested development, whether it's the product of mental illness or a domineering mother or both or 10 million other things may be hard to process if you see yourself reflected in that. Little Edie's main preoccupations that she outlines, the Catholic Church, swimming, and dancing, these are the concerns of an eternally young girl trapped in a 56-year-old body. And so we come back again to that idea that Little Edie was a girl who had everything, but prone to self-sabotage and self-martyrdom. Big Edie occasionally cruelly points this out, these tendencies, saying in response to her complaints, everything's good that you didn't do. They're still arguing over New York 20-odd years later. Big Edie claims that nothing good ever happened to her there, but little Edie idealizes the memory of it. She says she's more comfortable in the city, though I don't know that her 1952 reveries match up with the realities of New York City two decades later. But out here, she says she's scared of doors, locks, people roaming around in the bushes. So why didn't she go back and do those things?
1: I can definitely identify with feeling out of step from everyone else, wanting just different things, even if you find those things to be ludicrous, and sometimes maybe even choosing things because they may seem ludicrous. As to why she didn't go back, there are, as you mentioned, 10 million different possibilities. Her mother was ill. She didn't want to leave her mother. So I think when you get to that point, there isn't really a choice. And then that lack of choice becomes 20 years. And when you have no money to be able to invest in your own ambitions, what is left for you?
0: I like to think in Little Edie's case, in my imagination, if she had made it back, a very specific thing would have been waiting for her. Because how different is she in talent and temperament from any of Andy Warhol's factory or John Waters' Dreamland players? She's just a weirdo that is in search of the right scene for her. Or is Grey Gardens the right scene and her audience eventually found her?
1: Maybe a little bit of both. I do wish she had found a softer place to land. But she did continue to receive fan mail and answer it up until she died.
0: And I say weirdo in this context with complete affection. I include myself in that category.
1: In the best possible way. Because she did go back to New York after her mother died. She lived there for several more years.
0: How much would you pay to be able to see that cabaret show that she put on?
1: I think it would have been a whale of a good time. And those reviews, much like for the film, I think were people just having sour grapes. Because like her, my favorite part is her dance to the VMI record. I think it is so much fun. I want to hear her sing. I want to watch her dance. I love her routines.
0: Yeah, there's a good reason that that VMI marching band flag dance is one of everyone's favorite moments, including mine. She is so appreciative of an audience in that scene, specifically a male audience, an idea that she puts an awful lot of stock in. But without that audience, I don't think we would have this iconic moment, and that would be a shame. And there we come back to the idea of the prime directive of documentarians being to influence the action as little as possible. It'll be argued about for as long as the form exists. What's the best, most pure, and effective approach? There will always be the question of how much the camera changes things. And in this case, the answer is probably practically 100%. And I would not have it any other way. It's different for every film. And I would say in this case, not only did the camera capture the truth, it created the truth. It asked for little Edie Beale, and she gave it to us full blast, and I love it.
1: I'm thinking back to something that she said. And again, this comes from the person's voice. You have to take it with a grain of salt. And that was that the film was going to change nothing, essentially, in their lives. Certainly not how they were going to be viewed in East Hampton or by their own relatives. Or how they viewed each other. Their only quibble was Big Edie wanted more singing and Little Edie wanted more dancing. Of course,
0: that totally makes sense.
1: Don't have a problem with it.
0: Well, speaking of what should go in the film and shaping the direction of it, do you feel like there is an arc here? Is this good storytelling in the traditional sense, or are the Maisels just pointing the camera at something that is inherently interesting?
1: The only story I can think of is how summer turns to winter. We see what their summer is like and can only guess what happens in the winter. The story becomes something else viewed later on, and that is, again, knowing that Big Edie only had a couple of more years to live, Little Edie's life was going to change, She was going to eventually get to Florida. She was going to eventually have that show. But otherwise, we basically have five to six weeks of filming where roughly we can see the progression of days. But that's about it. The story is what happened 40 years prior. So I don't really see an arc. Do you?
0: Well, you mentioned they shot for about six weeks. And so there had to be a lot cut out. I'm sure they ran film on a ton of that time. Usually one of my first questions is, what didn't make it into the film, but that's actually answered somewhat by The Beals of Great Gardens, the follow-up that came out in 2006. So with that question answered, I go back to the question, did this method capture the truth of Big and Little Edie? Because life doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end in any traditional narrative sense. The filmmakers did shape it. It's not shot sequentially. It has emotional peaks and valleys. And their behavior does get slightly more out of control as it heads towards this climactic confrontation. They're frustrated and jockeying for attention, and one of these eternal arguments that they have comes to what seems like a new and particularly poignant place, and then finally we have a denouement where they have retired to separate corners, and the film gently recedes with each woman drifting into their own reverie, Big Edie dozing and singing upstairs, and Little Edie dancing downstairs. The repetition of the day-to-day and the subtle little differences in these conversations they've had a million times, it makes me understand the mother-daughter relationship is not an arc. It's a tide. It ebbs and flows. Now, if there's any factor that upsets that ebb and flow, it may be the contact that they have with the outside world, because their day-to-day existence is very rigidly defined, I think. I don't imagine much changes. As far as dealing with outside influence, it's much easier with animals than it is humans. Do you ever imagine yourself at a point in your life where you are putting down that pile of Wonder Bread and a full box of cat food in the attic?
1: That makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Knowing what she's doing. She knows what she's doing. She's inviting the raccoons in for Pete's sake.
0: Well, the human and animal worlds collide in this scene with Little Edie's conspiratorial whispering about books being moved about the house. Now, I don't believe that anyone but Little Edie put that book there and then forgot it, or even more likely to me, pretending to forget, to generate some sort of gothic mystery in her mind.
1: That, or a raccoon stole it, (laughs) or it had disintegrated years ago, who knows?
0: More importantly, it makes me think, what has happened to generate such fear of contact with the outside world? if indeed her mother is the oppressive villain that has lured her back here and kept her in her thrall for over two decades, is part of that program sowing complete distrust of anyone but her. So little Edie feels like she can't rely on anyone but big Edie.
1: I do have to take them at their word when they talk about how traumatic those raids by the health department were. And when she talks about that there could be other forces at work, people may just want to get the house. So their reality could have been true. People could be after them. Big Edie was elderly at that point as well. She could barely get around on her own. She was so hunched over when in those very short moments where you see her walking. They're exposed to the elements because of the decrepitude of the house and their relative poverty. And Big Edie would die of pneumonia, which the elderly are more prone to, sadly. And they've now had national stories written about them, exposing them. They were already talked about and ridiculed at a local level. And then it just became so much more from there. Little Edie also said that the relatives for the most part stayed away, including her brothers. So they didn't have much contact. They would have these occasional visits from the handyman or other people throughout the
0: years. That is a little bit of my counterpoint, actually, to what you're saying. I say that... They take what's reasonable to fear and, not surprisingly, project that onto everyone. Little Edie suspects ulterior motives with the delivery of this washing machine. She's concerned about the groundskeeper Brooks and his perception of them. Jerry, the Marvel Fawn, has to be watched at all times, but as far as I can tell, he's just a nice kid who humors them and helps out when he can.
1: I did feel that violation, though, when we see him on Edie's bed.
0: The thing about that, though, is Big Edie was encouraging all of that.
1: That's the problem. That's the violation.
0: And it's the same when visitors come for Big Eady's birthday. It's such an awkward scene. It's so hard to imagine. Nearly 25 years of your mother using every visit or phone call as leverage or a wedge to keep you at her beck and call, the residual effect of that is just impossible to fathom. And I'm not just making that up out of whole cloth. You referred to it earlier. Big Edie intimates that she didn't want her child to be taken away, either lured by the bright lights of the big city or by suitors to be left alone in this big empty house. So who is truly to blame for little Edie coming home forever? That thing I was saying earlier about her being able to discern truth, think about that in the context of her return and taking personal responsibility for herself. Did she end up not succeeding as a dancer in New York because maternal pressure forced her home? Or because she wasn't equipped emotionally or even just didn't want to do the work that it takes to become a dancer and therefore, with mom, had a convenient reason to bail out? Everyone has to be responsible for themselves, to not participate in a game they don't want to play.
1: And who knows what the story was at that moment in 1952 versus 1975?
0: It's a shame that Little Edie is so often such an unreliable narrator of her own story. She's hamstrung both by the revolt of her own brain and how she was brought up, since she is so obviously suspended in this elaborate fantasy of Eisenhower-era girlhood. She leans so heavily on this idea that if you can't get a man to propose to you, you might as well be dead.
1: I come back again to this idea of mental illness and what occurred to me and I don't think that's what this is but how age could play a part in this big Edie is elderly and it reminds me of a friend's grandmother who when we were taking her for what I can only describe as an outing from the home that she was living in was telling us stories about her husband my friend's grandfather who ended up being a violent schizophrenic, and how great a husband he was, how great a father he was, while my friend's mother was basically biting her tongue the whole time and essentially then had to just agree with her. When I hear these delusions, I immediately think of this woman, and that was age-related illness. But if you spoke to her, you wouldn't have thought that. You would just think it's a woman telling these stories, and if these other people weren't around, I would have taken her at her word.
0: Well, Eugene Tuskevich, it's a name that we hear Little Edie throw around a lot, he was asked later about this story that Little Edie tells repeatedly and how she positions him as the one, her last chance at happiness, that her mother drove away.
1: And especially towards the end, it's an incredibly striking story because Big Edie is relating things that he said to her. At least that's what we imagine. And it's as if it happened yesterday.
0: And it makes me wonder about the reliability of either one of them, because when he was asked about this, he said he only ever came to the door one time, and that was to ask if the house was for sale.
1: I didn't know that. You've just blown me away.
0: In the hothouse garden of Little Edie's mind, everyone that comes to the door is a gentleman caller in the most Tennessee Williams sense.
1: It definitely does remind me of the Glass Menagerie. I'm sure it does you as well.
0: Actually, I say Little Edie. Big Edie behaves that way, too. In their competitiveness, they are constantly wrestling the spotlight back and forth from one another, more like sisters than mother and daughter. And why? There is nothing at this point that's left to be won. Little Edie is never going to leave here as long as her mother is alive, no matter how much she protests. Still, though, you mentioned this earlier, they love each other. Watch that scene where Big Edie is singing Tea for Two, when Little Edie is not so aware of the camera for just a moment. She's just sitting there on the other bed, watching her mother sing, and she is beaming. Her face is radiant with genuine and deep love for her mother. You only see it for a split second before the camera moves, but it is so pure.
1: Here's what I think would have been the thing to be won. I love you, Mother. You are a wonderful mother. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to be here. Edie, you are a constant joy in my life. Thank you so much for being with me and taking care of me.
0: So you're saying insistently singing Marlena Dietrich songs at the top of your voice doesn't say that?
1: It does. After a fashion.
0: We get a final panorama of filth here at the end. A big Easy's mattress. That thing just speaks for itself. The cleanup crew that the Onassis' hired before this took away a thousand bags of garbage before this production even started. It's not uncharitable to call it squalor. That's just a matter of fact. Oh, and I did want to mention, before we get out of here, last year, there was an estate sale that finally, once and for all, sold off a number of their possessions. That curio cabinet that has all of Little Edie's trinkets in it, guess how much that sold for, contents included?
1: I'm going to say
0: 10000 $1,051, and all wow. of that could have been yours. Yeah. I think one of the rocking chairs that's prominently featured in it only sold for four fifty. And the lady running the estate sale specifically mentioned cat pee included for that price.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, I can see that.
0: The appeal of this story on a grand scale and why people are still so interested in it and actually owning pieces of it is that I think it has everything you think of in a truly great American story. Great expectations, unlimited potential, celebrity, grandeur, heartbreak, love, sacrifice, sickness... Albert Mazel said in 2014 that he hoped that most people who see it are shocked by it and don't want to see it anymore, but as evident from the way I described that my viewpoint on it has changed over the years, it's crucial to me that I've revisited it a number of times.
1: It also seems odd to me that he says that because he has so much affection for them and maintained ties with them. And definitely, I don't think, feels sorry for them or thinks that they're crazy.
0: We talk sometimes about another of our favorites, Frederick Wiseman, and how his films can be hard to watch. And this is in its own way sometimes. But even now, after having done it just recently, I do want to see it again. In fact, this may be the film that we've covered on the podcast so far that I have gotten the most out of thinking and talking about again. I don't even know if I realized until just right now how important it is to me. I appreciate what it shows me about my own personal arc and I think these women would be incredibly pleased by the fact that not only do I find this portrait of them utterly delightful but it makes me feel hopeful and like it's made me a better person at least a little.
1: I was going to ask you, based on that anecdote, if you thought it should be rewatched, and I definitely think it should. Because as we've mentioned, depending on when you watch it, I find it to be enthralling or terrifying or just a hoot. These women are a lot of fun to hang around with, and if that's all you get from it, great, but I think that there's a lot more to see and a lot more to explore, and I love coming back to it.
0: Well, have we covered everything about why you chose it?
1: I sure did, Big E.D. How about you?
0: (laughs) T for two and two for T. Should I sing? What is it? It's not needles and pins. What does Fred Armisen sing in the other one? Oh, Pitter-patter? Oh,
1: goodness. (laughs) Have you seen No, 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 (laughs) Net?
0: How about instead of all that, you give us a recommendation?
1: I chose Cinema Verite from 2011, which was an HBO film directed by Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, with Diane Lane, Tim Robbins, James Gandolfini, and Patrick Fugit. It follows the production of the PBS documentary series from 1973, An American Family, which is generally considered to be one of the earliest examples of reality television. I'm specifically recommending this over, say, the HBO film Grey Gardens as well that we had talked about earlier, which I definitely recommend, but this specifically, because I like to see the verite along with the cinema verite. And in this film, we see how decisions were made, those pressure points, motivations, coercions, relationships that develop and come to bear, that all determined what we eventually saw and the recriminations that followed. For example, why they decided to do the series, the affairs that took place on all sides, sexual and emotional ones. How personal moments were either presented or weren't, and how the crew got involved or chose not to. If nothing else, it's worth it all to be reminded of Lance Loud on Dick Cabot. And how about you?
0: I'm sticking with The Maisels, and I'm going to recommend The Salesman from 1969, directed by Albert and David Maisels and Charlotte Zwerin. It's a documentary that catalogs the trials and travails of four door-to-door salesmen crisscrossing the country to sell Bibles in low-income neighborhoods. Just like Great Gardens, there's no judgment here on the filmmakers' part. In fact, the Maisels were door-to-door salesmen themselves prior to making movies, so they were probably sympathetic to the cause. All the judgment comes from me in this case, and my general opinion of unsolicited sales as a profession. This is a fascinating portrait of an inherently repellent way of life to me, and it puts you right in the trenches. In the living rooms on that terrible furniture, in the dingy hotel rooms, in those demoralizing sales meetings filled with round faces that you can just tell are pink even though it's in black and white. Stale cigarette smell, bad coffee, brill cream, it is a genuine American tragedy and it is timeless. It's more fly-on-the-wall than Grey Gardens, but it is just as absurd and revealing of a certain facet of the American character.
1: It's a depressing experience. <laughs> it's
0: a grim slog, but it's great.
1: It is. You can smell, I think, the heart attacks developing and the what I can only assume is the eventual cancer. But hugely recommended. I also recommend a Primary. I'm just going to throw that one in.
0: So you recommended Cinema Verite? The HBO Grey Gardens, Primary. Do you want to throw in the stage production of Grey Gardens, too, while we're on the case?
1: I would, but I haven't seen it, so I can't recommend that one.
0: So, to sum up...
1: That's two great recommendations, as usual, Cinema Verite and Salesman. Here's why I love Primary. (laughs) Because it reveals that the general American public's greatest fear of JFK becoming president was that the nation was going to turn papist.
0: Well, they might have had something there, but I don't want to go into current events right now. Okay. And that brings us to the end of episode 85. If what we do here is valuable to you and you'd like to support that, we would certainly be grateful and we would love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magic lantern. The $5 a month level of support gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on alternate Mondays from the regular episodes. So you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern material.
1: For Septerica, I did some mini-documentary shorts from Pear Lawrence.
0: And following up quickly after that, I'm going to do an obscure but favorite W.C. Fields movie. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast and any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. The folks at the Random Chatterings podcast, Matteo Boscarol, Travis Trudell, the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Brian Sauer, Terry Osterhout, Guy Hogan, Maritza Gulen, Brad McDermott, John Laubinger, and Dean Estes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Special thanks this time around to Jesse Dampolo for leaving us a very nice rating and review. Thanks, Jesse. We appreciate that. If you'd like to leave us a rating and review via any of those services, we would certainly be grateful. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website MagicLanternPodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.